0: This talk was recorded by Insight Meditation South Bay in Mountain View, California. The speaker is Shila Catherine. For more talks and information, visit www.imsb.org. Well, the title of the talk is Simplicity, The Simplicity of Being. And I'd like to refer at first to the title of a book, which is a biography of Ramana Maharshi, and the title of that book is Be As You Are. Now the book is wonderful, I recommend it, but even if you don't read the book, I hope you will contemplate the title, Be As You Are. That alone is a profound teaching, because we already are as we are, and we can't really be any other way. But is that enough? Or do we find that we're craving more? Very often we complicate the present moment with desires, demands, expectations, trying to get more, gain more, produce more, do more. All of the busyness, the activity that fills much of our lives. In meditation we stop for a moment, we rest. We open to experience the simple beauty, the perfection, the simplicity of being. In my own history of meditation practice, I've trained with a number of different teachers, and they had a diff- each had different styles. My teacher in India, Poonchaji, would instruct people to do nothing. Just be quiet. Do nothing. Make no effort. And it was a profound teaching of unraveling any attempt to try to control or to fix or to exert self-interest over the situation. I practiced as well with a Zogchen Tibetan Lama, who instructed students in what he called non-meditation, where one learns to do nothing with utter clarity and in the Theravadan tradition we practice a lot of mindfulness and the mindfulness instructions although it's doing something it's really quite simple we know what's happening just now and we're present for what is when we're cultivating mindfulness we are cultivating the capacity to be aware and awake the specific techniques that we use for mindfulness are diverse but they're actually not very complicated. We feel the sensations of the body. We feel the sensations of the breath. We notice what's going on in the mind. We notice what's going on in the environment. We notice if we're reacting or responding or getting entangled in, the, in experiences, either internal or external. Mindfulness practice asks us to be aware of our present moment experience as it's changing. How do we interact with the environment? How do we interact with our feelings, with our thoughts? Mindfulness is not as complicated as most of the other activities you'll do during a day. It's not as complicated as driving to get here. It's not as complicated as as making an omelet, it's not as complicated as trying to get money out of an ATM machine, and it's not as complicated as even trying to send an email. You don't have to remember a password, you don't have to remember a pin code, you don't have to remember very much at all except the simple remembering to be present, awake. Sati, the term for mindfulness, is sometimes translated as remembering. But what do we remember? Not our whole life history. We just remember what's happening now. We remember to come into presence, to open. To open to whatever's happening. It could be hearing. It could be tasting. It could be an emotion. It could be a thought. Can we open to that? and be simply present with that? Or does something dramatic have to be happening to sustain our interest? It's very common, especially in beginning meditation classes, for people to say that meditation is so boring. But you'll find that after a while, it's not really very boring at all because it's our life. We're actually opening to experience the unfolding of our life intimately, clearly, in quite an awake state. The sense of boredom often comes when we're not actually present for what is, but we're wanting something else. And so there's a gap between the level of stimulation that we're accustomed to, that we're in a way demanding, and the simple experience of the present moment. If we haven't Developed the capacity to be steady and aware of subtle experiences like the sensations of the breath or the sense or the experience of tranquility or calmness in the mind, then we might manipulate our experience to try to make it more interesting, more entertaining, or more dramatic. This could be by breathing deeply. Or it could be by trying to force the breath in a certain way, or trying to control the breath through various, various breath techniques. But this is not mindfulness. In mindfulness practice, we let the breath be natural, and we bring awareness to it as it is actually occurring. If we're used to more dramatic emotional states, we might try to Dig up stuff in our meditation. Try to work out our personal issues while we meditate. Try to make something happen, something juicy. But this also is not really the direction of mindfulness practice. With mindfulness practice, we experience our emotions as they arise, but we don't go digging them up. We don't demand that they be one way or another. So it doesn't matter... From the perspective of mindfulness, whether the breath is long or short, whether it's rough or smooth, we don't need to make it gentler, we don't need to make it stronger. We don't need to make our emotions any particular way, nor do we need to make our experience any particular way. We don't actually need to improve the experience. But often when people come to meditation, they will come motivated with the desire to improve themselves. And so they think that this must mean learning to breathe better or learning to do something different or learning to feel different, learning something particular, trying to, in a way, control or change what is happening. Sometimes if there's pain in the body, students come and say, what should I do with this pain in my meditation? or I'm having this image in the mind or this thought. What should I do with the image or the thought? Or what should I do with this feeling or this memory? But underneath this desire to do things with our meditation experience is really a very simple desire. Usually, when it's pleasant, we're trying to figure out how to make more of it, how to keep it longer. And when that is unpleasant, What we want to do is to figure out how to make it go away. There can seem to be a compelling desire to manipulate, improve, or adjust our meditative experience. And the instruction in mindfulness practice is so simple, it is sometimes hard to believe. Can we let our experience be as it is, arising, changing, and ceasing, moment after moment, present and awake for that. Longchenpa, a great Tibetan master, said, enjoying everything, simply leave it as it is and rest your weary mind. Really, there is nothing fancy that we have to do to be present. Centuries of meditators have developed very specific and precise methodologies for meditation. And every era seems to refine those techniques to somehow fit into the culture and the needs of the time. There can be a lot of variety that we explore in meditation practice until we become expert meditators. And some minds will enjoy this exploration But whether it's one form of meditation practice that you develop or many, either way, the engagement, the way we interact with it, the way we hold it can be very simple. Variety is not the same as complexity. Exploration and diversity can simply be what one enjoys in the meditation practice. No more disturbing or distracting than playing piano or baking cookies. It's just simply what we're experiencing, what we're doing. There are times in our days when we feel like we have a lot on our plates, where we're juggling a lot of different responsibilities. Our to-do list seems to be on one of those roll-out things that never stops. Even when our life is full and busy and we have time pressures and deadlines, We can pause for a moment and bring an attitude of non-complexity to the experience, to breathe, to let the extra anxiety that builds around our activities fall away, and then simply do the activities, free of confusion and free of procrastination, free of that feeling of being overwhelmed by the immensity of what needs to be done, and just doing what's happening in the present moment because that's all we're gonna do anyway. We cannot judge simplicity by the outside aesthetic. Some traditions in Buddhism will be more or less streamlined. They'll have different styles. I don't know how many of you have been in a Bhutanese style temple or a Tibetan style temple. Have you seen those those temples? There's a lot of painting on the wall, isn't there? Usually every inch of it is painted, including the ceilings, with all sorts of ornaments and images and deities. They're exquisite, exquisite temples, just beautiful to see. Very ornate and a lot of primary bright colors. Has anybody been in a Zen temple or been to a Zen? It's a very different aesthetic, isn't it? Yeah, often it's very simple, streamlined, very Zen. (laughs) Yeah, very simple. Um, the altars in different temples will be completely different. Many temples in the, in the Tibetan tradition and some places in Thailand, I'd walk into them, and they, they wouldn't be just one Buddha in there. There would be a thousand Buddhas, little ones all in the walls and lots and lots of different, of different images. And other places, it would just be one small, modest little reminder that this is a practice that was developed and found by one man 2,600 years ago, named Siddhartha Gautama. The altar might be cluttered. It might be com- com- um, um, busy with uh, different statues and different offerings and incense and this and that in many temples, or it could be very precise. Maybe one ikibana kind of arrangement or one little simple bowl of, of, of flowers. But the simplicity is not going to be known by that outside look. It's known by how we receive the experience. Are we receiving that experience with reactivity or can we simply let the reactivity go and rest with what is? This doesn't mean that we are calm all the time. Nobody does that. Nobody does that. I've never met a person who was meh, calm all the time. We might go in spurts. We might go in, in, in busyness and get involved and this and that. And then we might rest and calm. The simplicity has to do with how entangled we are in that activity, not the pace that we move or the number of things that we're engaged in. But why does simplicity seem so rare in our world? Often, our sense of ourselves is confirmed through our activities. What we do reinforces who we take ourselves to be. Our sense of identity rests in accomplishment, productivity, engagement. And when we are in demand, or we feel more important. And there can be a kind of energy that builds when we're on a roll doing all these things. If we are strongly identified with our accomplishments and our tasks, our work, then we will not pause. We will not dare stop and rest because we'll want to keep reinforcing that sense of self. So meditation asks us to pause. It asks us to stop. And it invites, invites us to look and see, are we really that activity? How strong is the identification and the bo- the, the ba- um um, binding the bonds to the activities that we do. Are we our job? Are we our work? Are we our, our relationships? And meditation gives us the opportunity to just look into being. Can we simply be? Be as we are. How much do you need to do to relax? Do you find relaxation something that comes easily for you? Or is that a real challenge? Nearly all the religions that I've been exposed to have some form of deep relaxation, a kind of Sabbath, a day of rest, a period of retreat, a period of withdrawal, a moment of of quiet. We need this as human beings. We need to set down the busyness once in a while and just open to what our experience is as human beings on this planet. For Buddhists we don't take a Saturday. We do the Saturday once a month here as part of the as part of the the meditation group. For many, many years I had a commitment to do one day a month in silence and I found it to be a very easy thing to do. And so I've really enjoyed authoring these monthly day longs with insight meditation South Bay because it provides a very easy form for giving ourselves a little break every single month, a nice six six hours of meditation. But for the most part, as Buddhists, we do this through an alternating retreat and daily life practice. We might enter into retreat and then come back to daily life, you know, work for months. And then we go for another weekend or one week retreat. And then we come back and do our work and our family and live our lives. And then we take another time for a little retreat. It's a little bit like going on vacation but hopefully with greater depth than what most people experience just in a holiday. We take that time not necessarily to try to feel good or to gain experiences. We take that time to open to the truth of things, whatever that may be. There's a lovely story of um, an industrialist who um, was on holiday, took a vacation to a beach. And as he was walking along the beach, he saw a fisherman that was just leaning against his boat in the afternoon. And the industrialist asked the fisherman why he wasn't out catching fish. And the fisherman said, I've already caught enough for today. And the industrialist said, well, why don't you go out and catch some more? And he said, why? What would I do with them? And he said, you would make more money that way. And with the money, you could buy a motor and fix it to your boat, which would allow you to go into deeper water and catch more fish. And then you could sell that fish and buy more nets and more boats until you would have a whole fleet of boats and be a rich man, just like me. And the um, the, the fisherman said, what would I do then? <laughs> and the industrialist said, um, then you could really enjoy life. (laughs) And the response was, what do you think I'm doing right now? (laughs) I like this story because we live in a very fast-paced little corner of the universe, and sometimes we forget that the simple perfection of things is already present. Do we stop to appreciate it? If we're caught always in desire, then we'll be Um, uh, nurturing discontent instead of contentment. This is not to suggest that we should just flake out and not engage. It's very important to engage in our lives, to engage with our experience, to engage with our inner life and our social life, to contribute to our world, to take care of our needs well. But what is a wife's use of our time? I often hear people say that they will meditate after they have finished this project and that project. They will meditate after they have done this and that. And they will meditate, this one's a really tough one, they say, they'll meditate after they have straightened out such and such a personal issue and like once i figured out how to deal with anger then i'll meditate or once i figure out how to deal with the restless mind or anxiety then i will meditate Procrastination is a very interesting movement of the mind because it avoids and in a way disempowers us from the very possibility of being with the fact of things, of actually responding to the distracted mind, responding wisely to anger arising, responding wisely to the um, anxiety building. The Buddha said, short is the life of human beings, limited and brief. It is full of suffering, full of tribulation. This one should wisely understand. One should do good and live a pure life, for none who is born can escape death. We have the opportunity now to practice. We can't wait for ideal conditions, we can't wait for a time when we are more peaceful and calm, when we've kind of gotten our life together. The time we'll liberate our minds from suffering is always right now. It's in the present moment. It's when we open to the fact of things. One of my teachers, Sharon Salzberg, um we were studying with the same Lama, Neoshal Kenrin Rinpoche, and when he um, was dying, she had the opportunity to go see him in Europe before he died. And she was with him just shortly, some days or a week before his death. And she tells the story very um, powerfully of, 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 of our Lama reaching out and grabbing her hand and saying, um, practice, time is golden. That's the teaching. Practice. Time is gold. By the way, this is also the same teacher who would teach non-meditation. And yet, that wakefulness of practicing continuously doesn't mean one busies oneself with practice. It means we waste no time in delusion. We waste no time with clinging. I want to look at some of the things that we cling to, some of the ways that we build extras around our lives, some of the habits that tend to complicate things for us, that in a way distort the essential simplicity of being. And the first one to consider is just the material stuff. Is there a lot of material stuff that burdens your life? Closets, drawers... Garages filled with stuff, do we need it? Is it extra? Computers. How many things do you need one of that you have three of? Um, when I was uh, living with Punjaji in India, we were in a staying in an apartment that had two, um, two burners on the stove, and we had one pot. And I was cooking for him, and I wanted a second pot because I thought, oh, I could cook much faster and more efficiently if I had a pot on each burner. And so his response when I asked if I could um, go purchase another pot was, we don't need it. And his consistent response was, we don't need a second pot. What do you need two for? One is enough. You just make the vegetable, you take it out, and then you make the rice. It's like, um, and so for some weeks we were, I mean, actually one pot was quite enough. But I was insistent that we get a second pot, and I eventually found an opportunity um, where I had where I had where he would have to accept it, um, and I presented it in a way that he had to accept, and so I got to have my second pot. And then I stayed some years with him. And um, a couple of years later, he, um, a, a disciple had offered us a refrigerator. And we both said, we don't need it. And I truly, truly believed and felt and knew we did not need it. Anyway, he did end up accepting it because the way that it was offered, it had to be accepted. And we basically put two items in it. <laughs> we didn't use it. We didn't need it. We didn't need it. And I think like to remember that because now I walk into the kitchen and we have a blender and a cuisinart. You know, we have there's different there's different kinds of a uh, there's a special thing that makes rice. Then there's a special thing that makes popcorn and the the appliances. I mean, think about how many appliances each have a specialized purpose. But my favorite is the drawer that has um, that has the special tools in it. Um, the, um, the little thing that slices the eggs and then there's a different little thing that slices the um, avocados and then there's the, the, the um, several different ways of, um, of opening bottles and it's very interesting to see how specialized each little tool is. And when I want to um, cut an egg, I go to the egg cutter. And when I want to cut the avocado, I go to the avocado slicer. And how, how complicated things are when actually just about everything can be done just fine with one knife. It's not wrong to enjoy lots of different things in our lives, but do we know that they are extra or do they burden us? Monastic life is a wonderful discipline and practice because in a way it enforces simplicity. The ordained sangha is limited through their vows as to how many bowls, how many spoons, how many robes, how many anything that they can possess. And if they are given more than they are permitted, they have a certain period of time in which they must give it away or it's a transgression against their rules. And so there's a continuous experience of not only contentment with little and being satisfied with little, but a continuous opportunity to give. And so the practice of not needing is is, um, is wedded and, and intertwined with opportunities to give. Because they, they couldn't just hold it, they couldn't throw it away. That would be an irresponsible use of something. If they have to find, they have to give, they have to give, find a way to, um, to, to, to um, uh, pass it on appropriately. There's also the extra of the social interactions. Were all your conversations today important? Did you have an important conversation today? A meaningful one? Maybe an important encounter? Maybe a time when there was really a genuine speaking and listening to somebody? A heart-to-heart connection? Too many days we spent just kind of chattering on about this and that, not really connecting with each other and not really saying anything that we even care about. In a discourse in the Udana, the Buddha um, was going out for alms food, and when he came back from alms food, he entered into the monastery, and there were a group of monks that had come back first, and he heard their conversation. They were talking about politics. They were talking about the kings, and they were comparing the king of this kingdom compared to the neighboring king of this kingdom. Who had the bigger army? Who had more wealth? Who had more store, uh, stores of rice? Who had more this, more that? Um, greater treasury, greater territory, greater conveyances. That's like talking about cars. Um, greater army, prosperity, power. And when the Buddha uh, um, heard this conversation, he told them that it is not right for one who has undertaken Um, the, the, the life of a monastic to spend time speaking on such topics. He said, when you have gathered together, you should do one of two things, either engage in talk on Dhamma or maintain noble silence. Now I think it's a little softer for lay people because we need to speak about our work things, we need to speak with family, we need to make plans, we need to do a lot of things that monastics maybe don't have to do. But we still can take the spirit of this and reflect on our daily interactions and consider how many interactions were really meaningful to us and how many just filled the time, were mindless chit-chat or times when we just reiterated our own opinions. How could we improve the quality of time that we spend with our family and our friends and our community? We might find it is not necessarily through throwing more interesting bits into the conversation. It might be by a quality of simple presence. It might be by considering how is that interaction of speech occurring. There's also a lot of extra and complexity that can happen in the mind, the mental stuff, the proliferation of views, opinions, and beliefs, all those trains of thought in the mind. I don't know if any of you had thoughts while we were meditating, but it's, it's usually pretty common that we sit down and sometimes completely forget that we're even in a room with other people meditating until one of them moves. And then we're upset that they disturbed us. But what did they disturb? <laughs> sometimes we can actually be grateful that somebody moves because it disturbs a completely lost in thought moment and at least we're aware that we're in the room with other people sitting and meditating. There can be a strong tendency to get quite lost in the stories, in reacting, in pondering, in worrying, in fretting, in anxiety. Instead of just experiencing a sensation in the body, we might build up a whole story about it. Instead of just hearing a sound, we might have a whole reaction and play back and forth. Why is that sound? What is it? What does it mean? Da-da-da-da-da, and go on and on. Lots of things that we react to mentally, reinforce this sense of what I want, who I am. They reinforce the kind of person, the sense, the concept of the kind of person I I think I am. And we might hear something and then want to blame. We might uh, look for the cause. We might just create a great deal of mental complexity around situations. That If we look at it, is it really helping us? There are times when we must reflect and we should look very carefully with the mind, use the power of thinking very skillfully in meditation. But very often the habits of our mind don't further and deepen our reflection. Too often they just create a sense of separation, of alienation from the authenticity of our own lived experience that simplicity of being. There's also a quality of simplicity that comes when we let go of the selfishness that promotes hurtful conduct. We undertake the five precepts in the Buddhist tradition, which are protective guidelines for our actions. The commitment to refrain from killing, to refrain from stealing, to refrain from what's called sexual misconduct or engaging in sexual activity that causes harm, to refrain from false or hurtful speech, and to refrain from the use of intoxicants. They're really five very simple training precepts. They protect the mind from the complexities that come when we have lied, or when we have harmed, or when we have killed, or when we have stolen. When we have breached the precepts, we usually live with some fear and remorse. We're trying to conceal something, the mind is agitated, we worry. Abiding by the precepts is a way of simplifying our conduct. These five simple training rules encourage the mind to be clear and our actions to be pure. When we refrain from the use of intoxicants, we protect our minds so that it is then easier to um, c- to maintain our resolve for the other um, Precepts, Because if we intoxicate our mind, it is much easier to lie. It is much easier to steal. It is much easier to engage in sexual conduct that is hurtful. When our lives are aligned with the precepts, we'll find that we can move through our life's decisions and the various dilemmas with much less regret or confusion because we trust the basis upon which we act. It is a great act of simplicity to feel an impulse of greed, of wanting, but to let it go without acting on it. To feel an impulse of anger or aggression and to let it go without acting on it. To have that witty, nasty retort come to the mind and to let it go without speaking it. Meditators can use the precepts as a kind of framework for our action. And it gives us a kind of, I like to think of it as a framework, as a kind of a protection. And within that, It gives us the space to work more directly with the roots, the inner forces of greed, hate, and delusion, because we've already protected ourselves from speaking and acting on it. So we only have to work with that mental impulse arising. We don't have to deal with the consequences of having said such and such or having done such and such. It gives us a framework within which we can work in the meditation There's also the extra of clinging, and the primary form of clinging is clinging to the concept of self. When perceptions occur, often we claim that experience as I and as mine. Whatever that experience is, we often like to build a sense of being someone around it, which is different than just being in relationship to it. Why do we have to add the clinging to the experience? This may be the ultimate simplicity of being, just being, without needing to be me, without needing something to be mine. What is the simplicity of being? Being without these extras, without the complexity, that experience of deep non-reactivity, of silence, of non-effort, of contentment, the capacity to let things come and to let them go. One of the great stories in the Udana, one of the discourses of the Buddha, is where there was a wandering ascetic named um, Bahia. And he had a deep commitment to want to realize liberation. And he was seeking out the Buddha because he had heard that there was a Buddha that could teach him the way. And he finally, after many days and weeks of wandering through India in search of the Buddha, found him just as the Buddha was going for alms round into the village. And the Buddha said, you know, Bahia, this is not the time or the place. But Bahiya asked for the teachings. And the, the Buddha said again, you know, this is not the time or the place. And uh, three times Bahia asked for the teachings of the Buddha, saying and insisting, it is difficult to know for certain how long the Lord will live or how long I will live. Teach me the Dhamma. And so finally the Buddha agreed. And he said, here in Bahia, you should train yourself thus. In the seen will be merely what is seen. In the heard will be merely what is heard. In the sensed will be merely what is sensed. In the cognized will be merely what is cognized. In this way you should train yourself. When for you in the seen is merely what is seen in the heard is merely what is heard. In the sensed is merely what is sensed. In the cognized is merely what is cognized. Then you will not be with that, which means we don't add our views and our opinions and our concepts to the to the to the experience. And then it continues. When Bahia, you are not with that, then you will not be in that, which means not reacting, bound by those views and opinions, with that desire and aversion, attraction and repulsion. Then it continues. When Bahia you are not in that, then you will be neither here nor beyond nor between the two. So the mind is not bound by these dualistic constructs of me and you, of self and other, of identification and possessiveness. And it ends with the line, just this is the end of suffering. So in the scene, there is just the scene. In the herd, there is just the herd. In the sensed, there is just the sensed. And in the cognized, there is just the cognized. Keeping our perception that simple, with the full commitment to understanding and wisdom, we simplify our experience. We free ourselves from the complexities of grasping, of desire, of clinging and aversion. We don't necessarily need to increase our learning and our study of texts, but can we know what is just now on contact without embellishing it with concepts of I and me and mine? These are the real concepts to investigate and to free ourselves from. Can we keep our investigation, that precise, and that's simple, and be just as we actually are, with experience as it's actually unfolding, and live in full awareness. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.